Good morning, guys. And see that you are all just brimming with energy. So I will make you a deal, all right? If you try really hard to stay awake, I will also try hard to stay awake, all right? That's what we're going to do. You can take your Bibles and turn. We're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke to the, this morning for our last encounter with Christ. And we're going to look at Jesus being the patient teacher of his disciples. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And uh, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Okay, God, you're good and kind, and we're thankful for this weekend and all that we've learned, all that we've enjoyed together. Thankful for the time we have this morning to come before you and, and worship you through the study of your word. I pray that you would accept that, that it would be honoring to you in your great name, and that it would be for our good, that we would learn more and more how we can be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. Well, after couple of days. You all have proven yourselves worthy. I'm going to go ahead and give you your theme for the morning so you can start to write that down. And you have to promise me that you don't get up and leave once you get that, all right? Our theme for this morning, true disciples of Jesus must think as he has taught us. In our passage today, we're going to see several examples of Jesus interacting with his disciples and showing them how the way that they're thinking, and therefore how it's affecting their attitudes and actions, is counter-biblical, counter the kingdom of God. They're thinking worldly and naturally, and they need to think the way he has taught them to think. And, and if you and I are in Christ, if we want to be Christ's disciples and followers, if we want to be like him, then we need to think as he teaches us to think. So, if you have your Bible... Uh, Luke chapter 9, and let's start in verse 46. An argument started among them, um, sorry, yeah, an argument started among them as to which of them, an argument started among them as, as to which of them might be the greatest. Okay, um, so have you guys ever been in a situation where you walked up to a conversation and you showed up in the middle of it and you didn't feel like you really knew what was going on. Anybody feel like that here? <laughs> Start to read in, in verse 46 and, and we're missing something. We're missing the, 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 the context, right? Maybe this will turn out to be a good illustration of how important context is for reading the Bible. So before we start in Luke 9.46, because we have an argument starting among people who we don't know who they are as to which of those people might be the greatest, and we don't know what kind of greatest they might be. So let's find out what we're talking about here, and then let's come back to Luke 9.46, okay? So flip in your Bibles, let's go back to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to real quick walk through a couple of things that have gone on so that we can see what's happening, okay? In Luke chapter 4, verse 14... Jesus begins his public ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Turn over to Luke 4, verse 36. 
amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. When Jesus came and began his public ministry, he was instantaneously famous. The news about him was spreading rapidly. He was speaking with authority. He was casting out demons and healing people. And we saw him even raise someone from the dead. The, he, he has uh, widespread popularity almost immediately. Okay? Luke 4.42 says that when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And look at this. The crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Jesus is followed around immediately starting his public ministry by massive crowds of people. What is, what is a crowd? Is it, is it 10 or 20? No. Some of the stories we read, right? The feeding of the 5,000, which is 5,000 families, which is what? 20, 25, 30,000 people, right? These are huge crowds that are following Jesus around, listening to what he has to say. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In the midst of this public ministry, he's instantaneously famous. Massive groups of people are following him around, listening to his every word. And Luke 6, 12 says that it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them. Out of these hundreds, thousands of people that are following him around, Jesus chooses 12 men. 12 out of thousands. Feel special? Much? 12 out of thousands? You are the guy that got picked, right? All right, flip over to Luke 8, verse 9. Not only do these 12 guys get picked out of a massive group to be his, his special followers, his special disciples, verse 9 of chapter 8, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said to you, it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not, not understand. Not only are they his special followers, they get special privileges. They get teaching and explanation that the other people don't get. They get to come alongside Jesus after he's taught and find out what he is really talking about and get an extra clarification, extra explanation. Move down in chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. You remember the story? They go to cross the, the Sea of Galilee there on a boat, and while they're in the middle of the lake, a, a fierce gale, gale of wind brings uh, comes up on the lake, and they're going to be in danger. They cry out. They think they're dying, and Jesus wakes up and does what? Yeah. Jesus speaks and water molecules respond. Okay? That's awesome. And who saw it? The twelve, right? The ones in the boat. Now, verse 26 down to verse 39, they go across the sea and they go to the country of the Gerasenes and there's this, this wild encounter with this man who is not possessed by one demon or seven demons, but by a legion of demons. And Jesus casts it out and the man is saved. And who gets to see it? The twelve, right? And now, flip over to verse 51. This is an interesting distinction because in the end of Luke chapter 8, Jesus is healing. But in verse 51, when He came to raise 
this little girl from the dead. Verse 51 says, when he came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter with him except who? Peter, James, and John. Not the whole twelve. Only three. He has split the group now, and there is an inner circle, and then there's the other nine. Now, chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Guys, can you imagine Jesus choosing you and saying, I'm giving my power to you that when you tell someone they are healed of a lifelong affliction, it happens. That, that when you cast out a demon, the forces of darkness obey you. You guys get what's happening here. Twelve guys on the face of the planet that can do this. Does it work? Well, verse 10 says, When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. It worked. These guys, they are the special of the special. They get to do this with Jesus, which all of this leads up to teaching us one thing about the disciples, these 12 men, and that's that they had to struggle with pride <laughs> because look at what they've been given. Now, leading into our story, look at Luke 9, verse 28. You guys remember these stories, so I'm just I'm highlighting them. Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along who? Not the twelve. Peter, James, and John, and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, what happens? The transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John. Three men on the entire planet get to see a tiny glimpse of the glory of God, right? That's special. But what's happening to the nine that got left behind? Look down at verse 37. On the next day when they came down, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. A spirit seizes him, he screams, it throws him into a convulsion, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. So what had happened? On this day, three of the twelve disciples got to go see the most amazing miracle that has ever been performed on the planet when Jesus' glory is revealed to them. And the other nine are stuck at the bottom of the mountain, not being able to cast out a demon. Now read verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them was the greatest. You see how context helps fill out what's going on, right? So, we come, and how do you think that conversation started, right? Oh, you, could, you couldn't cast out the demon? You know, Peter and James and John, you, you could, what, what happened? Did you, did you lose something? Like, what happened, you know? What's going on? And they're like, well, if you were down here doing real work with us, instead of off gallivanting with Jesus up on the mountain, maybe you could have helped us out, right? But maybe not. So what are we going to learn here? The first lesson that Jesus is going to teach us in our passage this morning is a lesson in humility. And really, when we're talking about this lesson in humility, we're talking about thinking rightly about our relationship with other believers. Thinking rightly about our relationship with other believers. And first, we're going to see personal humility. 
So let's read this section. Verse 46, An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child, stood him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. We see a lesson in personal humility. They had an argument. An argument came up between them, and, and it literally says an argument entered in. That an argument started, entered in among them. Just a reminder for you and me that, that when we are not careful to guard our hearts from sin, it enters in. It creeps in. It sneaks in. And pride snuck into the disciples' heart, and it led to an argument between them. An argument started. It entered in among them. Now, it doesn't say in the text that it was a heated argument, but I think it was because in Mark chapter 9, it tells us that when Jesus asked him what they were talking about, nobody would answer because they were ashamed. I think it got a little heated. An argument starts among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now, this is hilarious. There is a Greek tense that is used only a handful of times in the whole New Testament, and it's a tense used to describe something that is not reality, okay? And so Luke uses it here when it says, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. I love that, that even Luke, as he's writing, says they thought they were the greatest, but we all know they're not, right? Isn't that hilarious? They might be the greatest, even though they're not. An argument started among them about which of them might be the greatest. Now, again, the irony here, we saw this last night, but in the passage right before ours is one of those times when Jesus had predicted his passion to them. I'm going to go and be delivered over to the sons of men to be crucified. And they started arguing about who's going to be the greatest, right? What a, what a stark contrast between his self-sacrifice and their self-centeredness. Mark tells us, actually, this argument happened while they were walking back to Capernaum. They get to Capernaum, they get settled in the house, and then Jesus calls them together and wants to talk to them. Verse 47, Jesus says, Knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. Well, knowing what they were thinking, actually, it literally says, knowing the argument in their hearts. Knowing what was going on in their hearts. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus knows the thoughts of your heart? You know, if you're in Christ, that is both encouraging and discouraging. It's encouraging that Jesus knows how much you love Him and want to serve Him even when you're really bad at it. And it's discouraging that Jesus knows how much sin you still have in you, right? Jesus knows the thoughts of their hearts. And so he took a child. Remember, he asked them what they were arguing about. They wouldn't tell him, but he already knows. And so he took a child and stood him by his side. Now, in this society, our society is very backwards. Our society, at least out in the world, uh, children are way too important. Let's just be honest. I mean, I mean, the children run the home, right? If they want something, they get it, and they, they need to be involved in this, and so we work our schedule around it. And frankly, that's just not a super biblical idea of family, okay? But the reality is, 
that children in this society back in in Luke's time was very different. Uh, children had no status at all. They were they were lowly and unimportant, and and they would have been kicked out right now, right? I mean, and so he takes a child and brings it next to him and sets it and it says by his side, right next to him. And Arcant Hughes says, "What's the example of a lowly person in our society? The modern lowly. Maybe it's someone who's poor." Someone who's non-English speaking or international. Someone who's mentally handicapped. Someone who is struggling with sin or is a new Christian. Someone who's the lowliest member of our society, whatever we think that is. And Jesus took that person and stood him by his side. Now what's interesting is, sometimes in the Gospels, this is an interesting thing to know. Sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus says the same thing in multiple Gospels. And the Gospel writers uses that to make a different point. Okay, So here... He takes a child and puts him next to him, and we think he's going to say, you need to have faith like a child. That's what one of the other Gospels says. But he doesn't say that here. He actually says, I don't want you to have faith like a child. I don't want you to be equal with a child. I want you to serve the child. I want you to be underneath the child. Whoever receives this child, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, that's the one who is great. Whoever receives or or accepts or cares for this child is doing the same for me. He says he wants his disciples to practice humility by, by serving others, the lowliest people, taking time and effort to care for them. And he says, if you do it in my name, does he mean that only we serve those who are Christians? No, he says that you are a Christian. You are in my name. Therefore, you can serve the lowliest members of society. The disciples have been blessed to know Jesus. They can now serve on his behalf. And he says, if you do this, if you you care for those in my name, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you is the greatest. I love how he says the one who is least. It's literally the word little. You know how I know that? Because in Luke chapter 19, there's a story about a man named Zacchaeus who was a we little man. Well, it actually says in Luke 19 that he was small in stature. He was little. He was the least. Now, this is a complete aside, and it's not helpful at all, but here's where my brain goes when I read the Bible. He says, the least among you is the greatest of all. And technically, one of the 12 disciples had to be the smallest, right? Who was it? I don't know. Thaddeus, right? It says, the littlest among you is the greatest of all. And Thaddeus is in the corner. And he's like, I've been telling y'all, right? Like, okay, maybe not. I've thought a lot about something that probably never happened. Okay, just. But the least, the littlest one, what does he mean? He means that the person who thinks he's nothing, the person who knows that he deserves nothing, the one, the one who considers himself insignificant and worthless, that is true greatness in God's economy. That is what it means to be great. And notice that he says it's great, not greatest. They were arguing about who was greatest, which means what? They were comparing themselves to each other. Hey, you're more important than me. I'm more important than you. I can do this better. I can cast out demons when you can't. I went and saw this thing that you didn't get to see. When Jesus is gone, I'm going to be in charge. They were comparing themselves to each other. God doesn't care to compare you to each other. He says humility is to be great. That's what it means. 
So just a quick aside, what does it mean to be humble? What, what is humility that we're talking about here? Some people think humility is this, this kind of self-loathing, self-deprecating, I'm dumb, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm, and my pastor likes to say that is pride inside out. Why? Because it's still all about you, right? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. I think he's on the right track, but I would actually say it this way. I think the Bible would say humility is thinking about yourself correctly, biblically, right? Humility is thinking about yourself, knowing who you are before God, saying, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I offer nothing to God. I have nothing to offer anyone else except what God has given me. That's true humility. And Jesus says, I want you, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to be willing not to be the lowest, but to be under the lowest, to serve the least among us, to be small and humble and willing to serve. That is being truly great. Matthew Henry said, let them be willing to be the least if that would contribute anything to their usefulness to stoop to the meanest office whereby they might do good. So the applications are pretty easy here, right? Do your actions show humility or pride? You say, well, how do I know? Well, <laughs> do you argue with other people or in your own heart about how great you are? That's a pretty easy sign right there. You stand in the morning, stand in front of the mirror every morning and be like, you are awesome. Okay, that might be a sign. I don't know if any of you do that, but consider that. Pray about that, all right? Or... On the flip side, are you the one who is happy to care for the least of these in service of Christ? Are you happy to inconvenience yourself for the lowly? The other thing here is how do you measure greatness, right? We talked about this in small group some yesterday. Greatness out in the world is what? Being powerful, being, being competitive, being able to be the best among your peers. Greatness, according to God, according to Jesus Christ, is being willing to serve anyone. So what do you think greatness is? Do you think it's because you're so good looking or because you have a decent bank account or you finally got the job you want or you finally graduated college or what? What is it? Or do you think it's serving others for the good of the gospel and the good of Jesus Christ? Jesus says it's not the one who can cast out the most demons who's the greatest. It's the one who's willing to serve. And then we transition from there to a lesson in collective humility. You see, the ar argument transitions from being between the disciples to now being between the disciples and someone else. Verse 49, John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. Jesus said, do not hinder him. Apparently, John had, had latched on to when Jesus said, serve them in my name. And he said, hey, that reminds me, somebody was trying to cast out demons in your name and we stopped him because he's not with us. So it brings up an interesting question in the disciples' mind. The question is, who is allowed to serve in Jesus' name? Who is qualified to carry the banner of Jesus Christ and to do ministry under that banner? Or, let's ask it a different way for you and me, how should you and I respond when people that are not us are doing real ministry for Christ's kingdom, how do we interact with other believers 
doing ministry? Well, there's two options, okay? John's way is in verse 49, and that is proud interference. Proud interference. He says, we tried to hinder him, to prevent him, because he doesn't follow along with us. Now, interestingly, it says, this man, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, the text doesn't say anything different. Jesus doesn't say anything different. I think that we are left to assume that he's right, that there is a man who is not one of the 12 disciples who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And apparently, he was not a charlatan. He wasn't like, you remember in Acts chapter 19, the, those seven sons of Sceva, where they go to try and cast out the demon, I'm casting you out by Jesus and Paul, and the demon says, I know Jesus and I know Paul and I don't know you, and he beats up seven guys and they run away naked and wounded, right? This guy is not that. He's not a charlatan. He, he is actually, apparently, doing real ministry, actually casting out demons by the name of Jesus. Who is he? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But regardless, this man was doing good. He was serving people on behalf of Christ and doing it well. He was trying to serve the kingdom of God. And what did John and the others try to do? They tried to stop him. They tried to hinder him, stop him from serving God. Why? It says, because he doesn't follow along with us. He's not in our group. He's not with us, and therefore he shouldn't be special like us. Is that pride welling up again? I remember uh, years and years ago, um, during the, was it the 2008 Olympics, I think, my older sister and I were at a Texas Rangers baseball game, and it was a rival, rivalry game against the Mariners, back when the Mariners were good. And even in our section, we're up in the cheap seats because we're poor, right? Even in our section, the Rangers fans and Mariners fans are talking trash during the whole game. But the end of that game was the night that Michael Phelps won his record gold medal in swimming. And so as soon as the game was over, they put it up on the big board to watch his final race. And it was fascinating that the moment the game was over, we all went from being Rangers fans and Mariners fans to being what? We're all Americans, right? And so here, James and John and all the other disciples have been arguing back and forth, but as soon as somebody outside the group is the problem, now they're all unified, right? It's amazing how that happens. We're all arguing about you know, how we're going to play this, this dumb pool noodle game out here, but as soon as the game starts, then chance is the problem, right? <laughs> it's the same thing here. John and the disciples, they're not fighting each other. Now they've joined forces to fight other people. But interestingly, the issue is the same, isn't it? It's still their own pride. It's the pride in their heart. Now, let me make a really important clarification here. This is not dealing with people that have heretical doctrine or the wrong gospel. Okay, There is a necessary separation from people who are not with Christ. Right here, we're talking about people that are doing real, legitimate gospel ministry under the banner of the real gospel of Jesus Christ, but they do it different than us. They go to a different church. They have a different philosophy of ministry. They do music a little bit different. How do we deal with those people? How do we react to them? Do we encourage and rejoice with them? Or, like John, do we try to interfere with their success? Do I find out something about how your church does something, and I start texting your ministry leaders, hey, I know Chance says this, but... You just know that's not the right way to do it. Of course not. So how does Jesus say we should respond? Well, verse 50, he says, it's humble deference. He says, do not hinder him. 
For he who is not against you is for you. He who is not against you is for you. Do not hinder him. Hinder him is like, uh, any of you guys have dogs and you, uh, you open the door to get the Amazon guy, you know, the package, and the dog tries to go outside. So what do you do? You open the door, but you stand in front of the door and you keep the dog in, right? That's hindering. You're, you're making an obstacle. You're keeping the dog from getting past you. The disciples were trying to hinder this man, to make obstacles for him, preventing him from doing this. And Jesus says, don't hinder him. He who is not against you is for you. Warren Wiersbe said, believers who think that their group is the only group that God recognizes and blesses are going to be in for a shock when they get to heaven. Right? We're going to show up to heaven and you're going to be surprised at somebody that's there. That's just how it's going to be. Matthew Henry said it this way, We need not lose any of our friends while we have so few. I remember during COVID, some churches were doing different things, right? And our elders gathered together and and there was a church that we all knew about that was doing something very different from us. And the elders decided to talk, should we say something to our people about how we're doing it differently? Or how we don't think they're doing it right? And one of our Older, wiser elders says, you know, guys, we only have a few friends in this world. I think we should leave it be, right? What about if people are doing ministry differently than you? Can you really be humble? In Numbers 11, Moses says that he is so excited that all the people could be prophets so that the Holy Spirit would be on them so that he didn't have to be the only one. In John 3, John the Baptist says that he is so happy that that Christ might increase and he might decrease. In Philippians 1, Paul says that that he rejoices that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. It doesn't matter if someone's not part of your special little group if they're doing legitimate ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Mark 9, the same encounter, Jesus says it this way, He who is not against us is for us, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Those who are doing ministry for the gospel will be rewarded in the end. That's the truth. Now what's fascinating about this is that this man was doing what that John didn't like? What was he doing? He was casting out demons. What was the thing that the nine disciples could not do? (laughs) not only do you and I need to be happy for other people to do ministry different than us, here's the fun part. You and I need to be happy for other people to do ministry better than us, right? You and I need to be okay if someone can do the same thing that we're doing and better because it's for the sake of the gospel and Christ and His glory. You see, they were angry that that he was casting out demons partly because they had their feelings hurt. So what happens for you and me when when we really want to serve on the music team and the new girl that's only been here three months actually has a better voice? What happens when you've been at this church your whole life and now this guy gets to be in leadership over that thing that you were hoping you got to do? Are you okay that God is honored and the gospel goes forth because people do ministry differently or better than you can. You see, true greatness is found in true humility, putting ourselves 
putting others before ourselves and not considering ourselves to be the best and the only way it can be done, allowing others to serve God in the way that God has gifted them. Humility is letting that happen, praising other people for glorifying God by serving Him. Now there's two more lessons that we need to see here, Jesus and His disciples. So we're going to move on to a lesson in patience. Lesson in patience. Now, this is not thinking rightly about our relationship with other believers. This is thinking rightly about our relationship with unbelievers. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, that's the village, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So the first section here is, What happens when reasonableness is rejected? It says they were approaching, the days were approaching for his ascension. That is, that the days were drawing close for Jesus to move toward his passion. We talked about that last night. He is determined. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he's moving forward that way. Verse 52 says that he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements. Now, this is a good thing. This is Jesus planning ahead. Remember, he has massive crowds following him everywhere he goes. He can't just show up at this tiny village and say, hey, we need food for 5,000 people. It doesn't happen. That's why he had to multiply the food for 5,000 people, right? And so here, he sends messengers ahead of him into a village to find out and to make arrangements so that they might be able to get some food or some lodging. This is a, this is a very tangible application, but it's good for you to plan ahead and it's actually to the benefit of others that you plan ahead. Okay, You might be fine you know, flying by the seat of your pants and figuring stuff out and showing up five minutes late every time, but other people get stressed out by that, so you can help them. Okay, So he sent ahead to make arrangements for them to plan ahead, but they didn't care. Verse 53, they did not receive him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't accept him and take care of him like we should take care of the lowliest members of society. They wouldn't do that. Matthew Henry comments that Jesus would have been, if they had pleased, the greatest blessing that ever came to their village, and yet they forbid him entrance. Such treatment his gospel and ministers have often met with. An application for you and me is just to know that when it comes especially to your faith in Christ, you're going to get shut down for all kinds of silly, petty reasons. Don't be surprised by that. That's how they treated our Lord. It's how they're going to treat his followers. It says they shut him down. They they didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him because he was traveling to Jerusalem. Now, I think you guys know enough about the Samaritans to know these were were half-Jews, right? From when the northern ten tribes were taken away to Assyria, they intermarried and moved back into the land of Samaria. They believed that worshiping in Jerusalem was wrong. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And so when they found out that Jesus and this group of people was traveling to Jerusalem for the feast, they said, political statement, we will not help you get there. Absolutely not. That's not okay. And so they turned them away. It's interesting that it says they didn't receive him 
because, you see that word? Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. What's funny is back in 49, verse 49, the disciples rejected the man because he wasn't with their group. And I think it's funny that in both of these instances, uh, John gets mad. So we move on to verse 54, which tells us that James and John saw this and were angry. (laughs) So what happens when revenge is rebuked? Well, his disciples, James and John, saw this and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, they are probably thinking of 2 Kings chapter 1, when Elijah, the man of God, stood there and all the groups of 50 came from King Ahaziah and tried to, to go past him. And he says, you can't do that. And they said, well, who are you? And he says, I'm a man of God. And if I'm really a man of God, I call down fire on you. And he consumes multiple groups of these soldiers until the last guy says, please don't, right? And so James and John are thinking, hey, back in that time, they rejected Elijah, the man of God, and he called down fire on the people that rejected him. Lord, and this is hilarious, they say literally, Lord, your wish is our command. Do you wish us to command fire? You say the word, and we will say the word to call down fire from heaven and consume them. Why are they thinking this way? Well, remember that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them that if a town didn't welcome them to leave and to shake the dust off their feet, the problem is that one commentary said they didn't want to shake the dust off their feet. They wanted the town to be reduced to dust, right? And so here they say, they say, you say the word and we will command fire. Now, could they command fire? Answer is no. Which means that if you and I were in Jesus' shoes, we would have said what? Yes, I would like you to command fire. We're all waiting and he would have humiliated them and embarrassed them. Is that what Jesus does? Of course not. Jesus, verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, maybe in your Bibles that statement is in little brackets or in italics or something. There's not good evidence for that being in the earliest and best manuscripts, so it might be a later edition. But I do think, like the commentaries say, that, that this at least informs what he's thinking. It, it probably is the right idea that, that he looks at them and he says, he says, you don't understand. That's not what we're doing. Uh, we're not here to call down fire on every single person that rejects us. We're here to preach the gospel that they might be saved. But you will notice that if that's really true and that statement is not in there, then the verse literally reads, he turned and rebuked them. They said this, we will call down fire on your behalf. And he said, stop. And they went on to another village. So what is your first reaction to rejection? When someone turns you away and doesn't give you what you want. Revenge? Or is it patience? Hebrews 10 tells us, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jesus says, don't call down fire on them. Leave them alone. Have patience. God will work it out in the end. He has a third lesson, and this is a lesson in commitment. Thinking rightly about our relationship with our Savior. Thinking rightly about our relationship with our Savior. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. He said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Three quick interactions here. The first one teaches us that following Christ requires significant sacrifice. They're going along, and someone, doesn't say who, says, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll be with you wherever you go. There's an application. You willing to follow Jesus if it means you're poor for the rest of your life? You willing to follow Jesus if it means you're a missionary on the other side of the world? I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, foxes have places to sleep. Birds have places to sleep. But I just found out that even the Son of Man can't get a room in a Samaritan village. He didn't just find out. He's Jesus. He knew, right? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You need to recognize that if you're going to follow along with me, you are signing up for the sacrifice of being with Jesus. You don't get everything you want. You get whatever God has for you. So for you and me, are we willing to sacrifice even the basic necessities of our lives for the sake of Christ? Or are you willing to give up comfort and, and food and shelter for Christ? Are you willing to give up your marriage or, or a career or vacations or luxury or whatever it is for the sake of the Gospel, for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to do those things even if everyone doesn't see how awesome you are doing it? Right? His second interaction teaches us that following Christ requires total allegiance. He said to another, follow me. He gives him a command, follow me. And this man is bold enough that he commands him back. Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. On the face of it, it's actually a good idea and an application that you should care well for your family obligations, right? The Bible is clear that, that you guys, as you age, you have a specific responsibility to your flesh and blood family, and you need to care well for your aging parents. So he says, I need to go bury my father. But Jesus responds and says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Allow those who are spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. You go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. You can't wait and deal with all these things when the gospel is at stake. Warren Wearsby said, Jesus is not suggesting that we dishonor our parents, but, not, but that we not permit our love for family to weaken our love for the Lord. Matthew Henry says, not that Christ would have his followers to be unnatural. Our religion teaches us to be kind and good in every relation to show piety at home but we must not make these an excuse from our duty to God. You see, it's when you say, Jesus, I can't serve you right now because I need to, to do this. So the question for you and me is, do you recognize the total discrepancy that has to be between your commitment to Christ and your commitment to everything else, even good things? How do you know that? Well, what if I asked one of your friends, hey, does he love Jesus more than everything else in his life? Does she care about Jesus more than everything else in her life? Or does she care about Jesus more than most things? Does he care about Jesus more than most things? The third interaction 
teaches us that following Christ requires complete focus. I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Give me permission to go back and and say goodbye. (laughs) Now this guy thinks he's got Jesus in a bind. Because in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah goes and recruits Elisha to be his little protege, he goes and he throws his coat on him and says, you're coming with me. But Elisha runs after Elijah. He, by the way, he's plowing with oxen while he does that. And Elisha leaves the oxen. He runs after Elijah and says, Sir, I need to go. He says, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah says, Go. Elisha goes. He kisses his mother and father. He sacrifices the oxen, and then he comes and follows Elijah. So this guy, he says, I've got Jesus. I have a literal Old Testament Bible verse example that I can say, you need to let me go kiss my parents before I come with you. In verse 62, Jesus says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is he saying it's wrong to kiss your mother and father before you go on a journey? Of course not. You should kiss your mom and dad. They, They care for you, okay? What he's saying is that if you are looking for an excuse, even one you think you found in the Bible, Your heart's not in the right place, right? If if you're going to start doing the work of ministry, but every time you're going to start looking back at what you could have had or the the decisions you could have made and you're not focused on the ministry, something is wrong. Following Jesus requires complete focus. So for you and me, what pieces of your life are serving as a distraction to your walk with Christ instead of a help to it? What areas of your life, what areas of your faith and ministry are you doing a poor job at because you're not focused on them well? Do you evaluate your decisions based on how they will help your walk with Christ or how they'll hinder your walk with Christ? Or do you make decisions based on what sounds good for the time? We have to be completely committed. Christ. Now, just for the sake of variety, I left all of our being like Christ applications for the end. So I want us to think really quickly about these last three encounters, or not the last three encounters, the the three stories that we looked at this morning. How do these show us how we can be like Christ? I think the main one that I want you to see out of this is his patient instruction. Dealing with his disciples over and over again. And just so you know, these things he's dealing with, their pride, their impatience, their disloyalty. He has dealt with all of these already in the Gospels. He's going to deal with all of these again in the Gospels. They keep coming up, and He keeps patiently teaching them. Are you patient with those around you, even when they don't ever get it? Are you patient? I think it's helpful here that we see that Jesus' disciples in different contexts He talks to a group of disciples. He talks to a pair of disciples. He talks to individual disciples. If anyone tells you that the discipleship is always one-on-one, or it's always in a group, or it's always from the pulpit, you say, yes, you're all right. (laughs) Discipleship is being patient to help others learn more about what it means to honor Christ. I think it's interesting that sometimes he gave positive instruction. He taught them. Sometimes he gave them commands. Sometimes, like with the story in James and John, he gave a simple rebuke and he moved on. Know that there are the right responses for the moment, right? The last thing I think we see here is his leadership. (laughs) 
He's teaching on humility and patience and commitment. But who is the best at these? Who is the most humble? Who is the most patient? Who is the most committed to anything ever? It's Jesus. <laughs> he is the leader. He is the example in all of this. You see, we don't only learn from Jesus by hearing what he says to us, although we should. We should know all of that. We also learn from Jesus by just being with him, by watching him, by following his example, right? Which is why this weekend, when, when we looked at him being the compassionate healer of the hopeless, how can we have hearts of compassion for others? When he was a stumbling block to the self-righteous Pharisees and lawyers, how, how can we be someone who is so committed to right doctrine that those who are self-righteous don't like us? <laughs> how can we be a patient servant of other sinners for the sake of the Savior? How can we be patient like our patient teacher and master? It is a blessing to be with Christ, isn't it? God, you're good, and we are so thankful for the time. So thankful for your word, thankful for Christ and his perfect example of all of these things. And I pray for these young people here that they would live lives of, of devotion to Christ, that they would be, be humble and patient and committed, that they would have hearts of compassion, that they would be committed to true righteousness in their hearts, that they would desire nothing more in this life than to be like Christ. Thank you for the time. Amen.